Happy and welcome to this edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm Dave Palmer, host of this program. Diane Xavier is running our board, and I want to start by thanking Julie Grimstad. She is local here, I believe, here in North Texas. She lives in Texas, and she's one of the people I've had uh, contact with to arrange an interview on a topic that I've actually never in all my years of radio had an interview about. So I love how we're breaking new ground. It's a, I know my guest is going to say this is a very important topic and it's kind of heavy. So we're going to, um, hopefully make it in such a way that it makes sense to you. It is the topic of brain death and what Catholics should know. Okay. This isn't something you talk about all the time, but our, our guest is very passionate about it. His name is Dr. Joseph Ebley and he is the president of the Tulsa Guild of the Catholic Medical Association, of course, up in Oklahoma and a private practice musculoskeletal radiologist managing partner with uh, Fidelis Radiology in Tulsa. And he also is part of the Tulsa chapter of Legatus. And so, Dr. Ebley, thanks so, so much for hopefully making sense of this important topic. And thanks for being a guest on the program today. Oh, thank you for having me, Dave. I very much appreciate it. Uh, why is this important? Let's just start from there. Uh, why should the average person be concerned about this, about brain death? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and I'd say the average person should be uh, interested in this topic because when you went to get your driver's license, whether you realized it or not, uh, you chose whether or not to accept brain death. When you chose whether or not to become an organ donor. Mm -hmm. So if you chose to become an organ donor, you accepted the concept of brain death. And so this applies, this topic applies to almost everyone in the United States who's of driving age. Yeah. And if not you personally, then your children, your grandchildren. Um, and so about, I think about 42 people per day are declared brain dead and their organs harvested. So it's, it's not, it's not uncommon. So is there a, obviously there's a, a, a disparity between what they're considering brain death to be and what you believe it to be. So can you, can you uh, talk about that distinction or what's, what's the problem? Yeah, that's it. So what is death? Um, and so as Christians, we define death as the moment the soul leaves the body. Yeah. So the human person is the substantial union of body and soul. So we have a material component and an immaterial component. And when the soul leaves the body, that is death. How do we know the soul has left the body if the soul's invisible? Yeah by the consequences of the soul's absence. Once the soul has left, the body begins to disintegrate, to decompose, because its principle of, of integration has left. And so we see this, because death is the same in all warm-blooded mammals, we see this when an animal dies. So if our pet dies, like, right, how do we know that it's dead? Mm -hmm. Well, it's unmoving, it's stiff, its ambient temperature, eventually it will start to decay if we don't do anything with it. And so this shows us that death is the irreversible cessation of all vital function. So everything in the body stops and then decomposition ensues. So what is brain death? Is brain death the same as death? Brain death says that a person is dead 
based only on the loss of brain function. Mm. Okay, so if you were to see a brain-dead patient, they would be warm, they would be pink, they would have a heartbeat, they would be breathing. Brain-dead patients can heal wounds, they can fight infection, they can utilize food nutrients. Chronically brain-dead children will grow and sexually mature. Brain-dead pregnant women gestate their children. And so from the very beginning, even as a layperson, and not surprisingly, a lot of healthcare professionals, you're intuitively concerned that a body with a heartbeat that's breathing and growing and fighting infection is not dead. Now, is this... uh... Is there a sinister motive here in some people in the medical or uh, profession trying to consider people brain dead too early in order to harvest organs? Is that what the problem is? Is that uh, there, there's money to be made, or, or wow, what's what's the big problem here? Well, that's a, so that's a that's a very good question, um, a very complex question. Uh, first of all, organ donation transplantation is a multi-billion dollar industry. And so whenever there is money involved, all of our listeners know that the moral lens becomes distorted. Yeah. Right? Money, money, unfortunately, is a very powerful influence on uh, the human person and oftentimes in a poor way. One of the things that we as human persons have a tendency to do is we want to do whatever we can do and not necessarily think about, is it the right thing to do? Yeah. And so organ donation, brain death was originally defined within a year of the first cardiac transplantation, the first heart transplant. So there is a very close temporal relationship between brain death an organ donation transplantation. So if heart transplantation was going to be feasible, a new standard of death was necessary to determine when a heart could be harvested from a body that outwardly seemed alive. Because if the heart had, if the, if the heart had decomposed, it would be of no use. Yeah. And so in 1968, Harvard came out with this um, statement in which they defined irreversible coma as a new criterion for death. Irreversible coma as a new criterion for death. And this became what we know as brain death. Hmm. So they didn't actually claim that the patient was biologically dead. But essentially what they said was, this patient is, for all practical purposes, yeah. dead. And in our utilitarian society, if you're for all practical purposes dead, then we can take what you have because you're weak, you're vulnerable, you don't need it anymore. You're not contributing to society anymore. And this uh very, very interesting. I'm trying to think of the case uh, a number of years ago. I think her name was Schindler. Uh, 
Do you remember the the the, the big big national case where uh, the husband wanted to pull Harry the plug? Shivo. Yeah, Sh- Sh- Shivo. There you go. Yeah, yeah, Shivo. Does this does this pertain to that, or are there any high profile cases that people may be familiar with where brain death uh, hit hit the the mainstream news? Yeah, Terry Schiavo was was not a brain death patient. Uh, that was somewhat. That was a different different subject. S- yeah. Similar, same vein. I understand why you're saying it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe I can tell your viewers, your listeners, a story. Will that be helpful? Oh, tell yeah, them a story yeah. about a patient. Yeah. So there was a, a young man named Zach Dunlap from a small town outside of Oklahoma City. So very, actually, very near North Texas. In 2007, at the age of 21, he sustained a severe brain injury in an ATV accident. He was airlifted to a hospital, and Zach was evaluated for brain death using the bedside clinical examination and a nuclear medicine perfusion study. Mm. Okay, that's sort of, he was evaluated for brain death. 36 hours after the accident, he was declared brain dead. Mm. Now, Zach had indicated on his driver's license he wished to be an organ donor, and his parents gave their consent for him to be an organ donor. But around this time, right before his organs were about to be harvested, Zach's cousin was with him, and his cousin was a nurse, and he said, you know, I, don't, I really don't feel like Zach is dead. And so he took his pocket knife, and he scraped it along Zach's heel, And Zach jerked his foot out of his cousin's hand. Mm. And then his cousin took his fingernail and he dug it under Zach's fingernail in a painful area. And Zach drew his hand away. The attending physician verified these movements seemed incompatible with death, brain death. And the imminent organ harvesting was called off. So Zach escaped organ harvesting by like minutes, maybe an hour. Death by organ harvesting. Wow. Five days later, Zach opened his eyes. Twelve days later, Zach told his parents, I love you, and took his first steps. Forty-eight days later, he walked out of the rehab center and went home. Five months later, he was being interviewed on the Today Show in Dateline. Wow. And Zach claimed he could hear a doctor declare him brain dead, and he felt incredibly angry. But there was nothing he could do about it. Oh, wow. So let your listeners think about that, all right? Because there's a number of things we can talk about, if you wish, about this particular case and what it highlights. But one of them is is that brain death equates unresponsiveness with unconsciousness. Okay, Unre- mm-hmm. it equates unresponsiveness with unconsciousness. So Zach could hear the doctor, but he could not respond. Wow. He was unresponsive, but he was not unconscious. And there is no reliable way in medicine to determine whether an unresponsive patient is inwardly conscious or not. There is no reliable way to know. Hmm. And so, I mean, to me, I just think to myself, my gosh, it would be terrifying yeah. to hear someone say, 
this patient is brain dead. We are going to harvest his vital organs. And you hear this and you know that it's coming and there is nothing that you can do to stop it. Yeah. That'd be torture. Um, It would. Let me just remind our our listeners, very important topic. We're talking about brain death and what Catholics should know. Our guest is Dr. Joseph Ebley. And uh, uh, Dr. Ebley, talk about the American Academy of Neurology uh, guidelines. You've kind of you know, explained very, very clearly and concisely the, the, the problem here. Do they have it right, or, or are they on the side of hastening this uh, to, to the degree that you're, you're talking about before? You know, the, the, what, what, what are their guidelines? What are their guidelines? It's a, it's a good question. So basically what they do, what the American Academy of Neurology did, was in 1995, they came out with their own set of guidelines, Okay. And what they did was is they took the original guidelines from 1968 with Harvard and they kept all the parts of the bedside clinical diagnosis. They said, we'll keep that essentially unchanged. But they did make several changes. And one of those changes was the Harvard guideline said an electroencephalogram, so an EEG, a test to de- detect brain electrical activity, okay? Mm-hmm. That was recommended by the Harvard guidelines of great confirmatory value. But the American Academy of Neurology made it optional. Now, that's kind of interesting. Why would they make it optional? And so there's a little background information. A study had come out in 1971 out of Minnesota of 25 patients meeting clinical criteria for brain death. Nine of those had EEG testing, and of those, two had persistent EEG activity, but were nonetheless declared brain dead. In 1987, an article came out with 56 patients, and 11 of these demonstrated persistent EEG activity. Nonetheless, they were declared brain dead. So EEG activity is telling us that there is electrical activity in the brain. In other words, the brain is still, is still active. It is not completely and irreversibly non-functional. The American Academy of Neurology responded to this by making the EEG optional. Hmm. Now, why would they do that? Well, because it was problematic. In other words, every, when we looked, we found brain electrical activity. But if we don't look, we can't find it. So we changed the criteria from the original Harvard criteria because EEG activity is inconvenient. (laughs) In other words, it's telling us that the brain is actually still alive and we're saying that the patient is brain dead. Mm -hmm. So this change reveals the guiding principle of the brain death guidelines, which is this. We make the rules up as we go to continue to justify brain death. Yeah. Okay, we make the rules up as we go. The American Academy of Neurology guidelines are, by their own admission, not evidence-based. They are not evidence-based. They are based only, again, by their own admission, on expert opinion. And an opinion, of course, can change at any time. There are two additional 
Go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, I don't. No, no. Interesting. I, I just, we got about five minutes remaining, and I know that uh, people are taking this all in, and uh, I, I love the way you teach because you teach very deliberately and uh, in, in such a way that I think it makes sense for the average person. Uh, but I do want uh, to ask you about the takeaways. You talked at the beginning yeah. about the, you know, the, uh, donating your organs to science and your driver's license. And so what right. should the average person take away from this and say, okay, maybe I shouldn't you know, say I'm going to do that, or maybe I should, but with conditions, maybe I need to change my will. What, uh, what, 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 yeah. what, what, what's, what are the takeaways here? Well, I think a, a really basic message is this. The goal of organ transplantation is to save lives. That's why we transplant organs, but lives cannot be saved at the expense of other people, including sick or dying people. And this is very important for your listeners to remember. A human person can never lose their dignity. They can only be treated in an undignified way. Dave, I did not give you your dignity. You did not give yourself your dignity. God gave us our dignity Mm. by making us in his image and likeness. And each of us was redeemed by the precious blood of the lamb. People are not expendable. All the evidence, which we didn't have a time to get into all of it, but medical, metaphysical, biophilosophical, all of it confirms what the layperson intuitively knows when you look at a brain-dead patient. And that is that brain death is not equivalent to the death of the human person. Mm-hmm. Brain death is the culture of death disguised as the culture of life. And it reflects the worst kind of paternalism because the physicians, the philosophers and lawyers who created and continue to promote brain death know that if given the chance, the public will recognize that brain dead people are still alive. So the reality has been carefully hidden from us. As you essentially admitted to, you knew nothing about it. Laws have been passed without our knowledge determining the very definition of death. And so now is the time for the public to know the truth. Now is the time for the people to have a voice. There is a proposed revision to how we declare people dead currently being heard right now as we're speaking before the the Uniform Law Commission, which no one knows about. And so what I want to tell your audience is, Go out there, contact your state representatives, ask questions. Ask questions. Say, I don't understand brain death. I don't understand what's going on with it. Can you tell me? Ask your priest. Ask your bishop. Ask questions. Because the truth will come out once we begin to ask those questions. People will realize what's going on. And so have, go out there, ask questions, and try to get this issue um, on the, into the forefront because otherwise we will proceed down a slippery slope for an increasingly permissive standard to declare someone brain dead because we live in a utilitarian society. And that is what the current law being proposed will do. It is analogous to what happened in countries with legalized euthanasia. The standard went to kill yourself from old people who are dying to depressed people 
to children very quickly, very quickly. Yeah. One, go ahead. Oh no, th- thank you. I I I just have uh, another question. Um, uh, the, the, and, and then I want to uh, give you any resources or if you want to give your own contact information so people can, uh, like me, who are intrigued, can learn more. But uh, it, it seems to me, not only in this topic, but my general feeling, somebody outside the medical community, is that generally the medical community has a narrative that they want to push. And people who are on the outside, outliers, who have an alternative you know, theory that they at least want to propose, are not received too well and so let's just say yeah, that's right so i'm just wondering are you uh are you are you an outlier how are you received generally speaking in the medical community and people of your ilk uh and uh just speak about that is that is it are you going out on, the, really on, on, on a limb here i i think about like and again this is a whole different topic but like the, the vaccine issue wherever yeah there, there's a narrative and maybe they're right but they they don't want anybody even asking questions. That's just my opinion. Right. And if you're asking questions, you're, you're silenced and you're thrown off YouTube. And, and, and so I just wonder, does this topic fit into that same kind of category? Well, let me put it this way to you, Dave. If you believe that you have the truth, you will say to someone, go ahead, ask me any question you want. Propose the hardest challenge and the greatest arguments that you can. I will refute them. You know mm-hmm. why? Because I have the truth. Yeah. Go ahead. Take your best shot. With this subject, it has been hidden, hidden from view. I mean, completely, completely pushed outside of the scope of what the public can see. Articles that are um, against brain death have been suppressed, even within the Catholic community. Even within the Catholic community. All right. And what I will say is, how, how have I been received? And I, I'll answer that in a somewhat specific way. So I am of the millennial generation. And I will tell you that millennials want the truth. Yeah. Millennials want the truth, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's going to cause problems or not. We want the truth because the truth will set us free, even if it's going to take us sucking down a lot of humble pie. And so I will tell you, amongst the millennial generation, I have been unreservedly supported. Amongst the older generation, I have had a very mixed response. Mm. The older generation is really not as interested in the truth. They're more interested in doing things that are not going to ruffle feathers. They're more interested in doing things that are not going to cause controversy. But the millennial generation is not so. The millennial generation wants to know the truth. And they're willing to fight for it. So that's 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 sort of how I've I've I have been received. Is that the younger people, the younger people are completely on board. Yeah, they're like absolutely. We want to know. We want to know the truth. Just give us the facts. Just give us the medical evidence. Older generations have other concerns that perhaps are more at the forefront. Interesting. So it's generational, the response. Uh, we're going to have to leave it at that. Uh, Dr. Joseph Ebley is uh, uh, the president of the Tulsa Guild of the Catholic Medical Association. He's a radiologist, uh, musculoskeletal radiologist, and with Fidelis Radiology. Uh, fascinating conversation. I got to admit, I even told 
uh, our producer here, before I started, I said, gosh, this may be really boring, but I, I, I think it was anything but boring. I thought it was a fascinating conversation, and I'd love to talk to you more about it sometime. But uh, Dr. Ebley, what, what, uh, what, what should people do next? If they're intrigued and they want to learn more, is there a link, a website, a Facebook page, an email? What, what should they, what's the next step? I would say the best place to go would be if you Google homiletic and pastoral review, which is a magazine for cler- for clergy, and then you Google brain death, so homiletic and pastoral review brain death, you'll find me. You'll find the article that my colleague, Dr. Wynn, and I wrote, and my email is on there. Okay. So you'll find the article. You'll see a picture of me. Uh, you'll see a little biographical blurb and my email eblyj at yahoo.com is on there um and you know you can contact me that way but i would encourage you also to reach out to your state representatives and priests all right ebley is spelled e-b-l-e e-b-l-e so it's e-b-l-e-j at yahoo.com all right uh fascinating conversation i appreciate your time and uh i um, it certainly left me a lot to think about, especially a guy who once had a, a skull fracture myself uh, many years ago on the playground. And so uh, the brain is something that I think about a lot. Uh, Dr. Ebley, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Diane Xavier, for producing and running the board. And again, that uh, email, if you want to get in contact with Dr. Joseph Ebley, is eblej at yahoo.com. That's uh, eblej at yahoo.com. Uh, thanks so much. I hope we can talk again sometime, Dr. Ebley. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for your time. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have suggestions uh, for future interviews, you can email me directly, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. This has been the KTH 910 AM interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Tell your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. Financial Peace University is a nine-lesson class designed to help you build a budget, dump your debt, grow your wealth, and leave money stress behind. Each lesson is based on biblical wisdom and common sense. The next class starts 6.30 p.m. Tuesday, May 18th at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church in Keller. For more information or to register, go to www.seas.com. CC.org. Attention homeschooling parents or those considering homeschooling. The second annual virtual Catholic homeschool conference is coming May 19th through 22nd. Four days full of guidance, encouragement, and inspiration. There will be over a dozen live sessions and over 50 pre-recorded talks. Plus, the daily rosary, streamed mass and adoration, and a Friday evening family movie night. The conference website is catholichomeschoolconference.com. That's catholichomeschoolconference.com. Registration is free. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the KTH 910 AM Interview of the Week uh, here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. It is Saturday. It's May 15th, and we don't always uh, say the exact date, uh, but uh, it's important for this one because this is a timely interview where we want you to take advantage of something wonderful happening in North Texas, and that is the traveling St. John Paul II monstrance, which has been here before, and uh, we want to give you a chance to uh, to venerate the monstrance and worship our Lord in the monstrance. Uh, and to talk about that, we have Joanne Bressoir with us. Uh, she serves as regional director of the Sierra Clubs of the South Central United States, and she's the one that's been coordinating this uh uh, this traveling monstrance and setting up the schedule. And uh, and so we, we welcome her to the program again. Joanne, thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you, Dave. It's always a privilege to speak with people on Cath Radio. Yeah, so let's talk about your position. This is a, a new kind of promotion that you've gotten as regional director. Is that right, of the Sarah Clubs? Yes. So I was the district governor over what we call District 46, which at the time included the dioceses of Dallas and Fort Worth. And as of recent, we've expanded it to the diocese of Tyler. We're starting Sarah Clubs in the in District 46 in the uh, diocese of Tyler with the permission of Bishop Strickland. And now that position as district governor will be taken by Mr. Sam Pollock, uh, who comes from the Dallas Sarah Club and has served in many great capacities in Sarah. And I've moved on to the district governor's position for South Central uh, United States and um, very pleased to do so and now serve on the uh, Sarah uh, U.S. Executive Board as a result of that. Um, oh, well, congratulations on uh, that that promotion, new new responsibilities, and uh, interesting. There's so many good things happening in Tyler. We have started recently started a radio station there, and I visited with Bishop Strickland last week, and so uh, it's neat that. So, are are there as of now no um, no Sarah clubs yet, and it's starting in Tyler, or what's the status there? Well, that's correct. There are no official Sarah clubs, but we have the commitment of two parishes. In that diocese, the, uh, the parish of St. Therese in Canton, which I think is where you might have visited with Bishop Strickland a few weeks ago, and the uh, parish of St. Jude in Gun Barrel City. Both those pastors are sponsoring Sarah Clubs, and now the work begins to invite people to contemplate joining Sarah in those two areas, and then we hope to expand further. But uh, we have a blessing. We have a a lot of uh, retired Sarans out that direction, as well as young people. And so we welcome anyone, be you Tyler, Dallas, Fort Worth, to contemplate Sarah. We're looking for uh, active Catholics who love their vocation and want to promote uh, the church through priesthood vocation and vocations to the vowed religious life. And so this is our apostolate. We take it extremely seriously. And uh, I know all Catholics do. Yeah, very nice. And 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 I want to get to the monstrance, of course. So we're going to talk about that and and where it's going to be and how people can get involved. But as far as Sarah, if somebody's listening, of course we're broadcasting in the the, the Dallas Fort Worth area right now. What does what does it involve as far as the time commitment? Are there dues? What what you know? How involved or not involved does one need to be to be a, a member of Sarah? Well, the involvement is up to you. So if you're drawn to do more or fill a position in the in a club, then we're, you're welcomed completely. But also if you want to be a silent person uh, and uh, be one supporting us with prayer, we also want you as a solid Saren. So um, we welcome you. Uh, yes, there are dues in the clubs depending on their investiture into vocational activities. Their dues seem to ride with that. So no Sarah Club's dues are exactly the same. Um, I'll say that I'm a member of the University of Dallas Sarah Club. Yeah. And our dues are 200 a year. So divide that by by four or however your payment plan might be. It's a limited amount. And in a sense, we have activities such as meetings surrounded by a mass and then by breakfast, which in many cases is covered by the club. So, you know, 
the money is kind of a wash in some sense. And, of course, donations are always uh, welcomed because of all the activities that take place through Sarah for the diocese. Yeah. So it isn't, um, I'm not going to say it's it's nothing, but it isn't, you know, um, a real draw of your funds, more of you about your prayers and your work. Right. Okay. Very good. Now, what's the relationship between uh, Sarah and the Traveling Monstrance? Uh, is this sponsored by Sarah? And maybe that'd be a good way to lead into what the yeah. Monstrance is and uh, what should, should yeah. people should know about it. I wouldn't say it's sponsored by. I would say it's facilitated by. Um, the Monstrance, of course, um, is from our St. John Paul II, when in 2004... He requested six monstrances be designed and be brought to him for each continent in the world with the exception of Antarctica. He took the one for North America, held it, this very monstrance we're speaking about, blessed it, and handed it to the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops, who in turn just turned around and looked for that group whose mission was totally devoted to vocations and handed it to Sarah U.S. and asked Sarah to be the caretaker and the one who saw that the Pope's desire was fulfilled. And that fulfillment would be in making sure the monstrance went to as many local parishes, convents, universities. I'm throwing in Newman centers. He didn't enumerate all this. I am for you. Um, and to pray for vocations, again, to the priesthood and bad religious life. That was the whole motivation behind the monstrance in all the continents. And so this is that monstrance, which is now a second-class relic in that our saint held it himself. Uh, It is inscribed on the bottom with an inscription to the effect of what I've just told you. Um, And it is that monstrance. It is the saint's monstrance, and we fulfill that desire that he had. And many I hear, you know, that parishes, et cetera, have the traveling chalice or a monstrance or a cross, and that's beautiful, and they should continue that. But this is only in that this is a specific monstrance for specific purposes. Uh, it is the outpouring of the desire of St. John Paul II, and we're fulfilling that on his behalf. And many will tell you that they felt the grace of the monstrance in calls to vocation, um, it isn't going to be the singular thing, but it is a contributor to their faithfulness, to their faith. Yes, and I see the schedule ahead of me here, in front of me here, and there's, uh, it looks like the the monstrance arrived in North Texas uh, back in uh, early to mid-April and uh, has, yes. has been at a number of sites already, including the University of Dallas and uh, parishes in Dallas and Fort Worth. And so let's talk about, uh, the, the, I want to talk about just maybe the next week or two where the monstrance is going to be, what opportunity people have uh, to go and, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. It looks like tomorrow, uh, the 16th of May, Sunday, Redemptress Mater Seminary in Dallas, uh, will be the location yes. just for a day. And then we've got a few other locations. So where, where can people take advantage of the, well, seeing the monstrance in the next couple of weeks? Well, right as of today, it went to St. Philip the Apostle in Louisville, for you who are in the Fort Worth area. And as Dave said, it then goes to a Redemptress Mater on the 
questions and they um not the first time Redemptor's Mater has had the seminary as uh, a monstrance and uh, Redemptor's Mater was very near and dear to the heart of St. John Paul II. You may or may not know that he's the founder of that uh, methodology of, mm. of gathering men to the seminary. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken with my history, um, it is an international group with an absolute uh, faithful gathering in that it's a lottery draw of a kind as to where the young man ends up in his life in the priesthood. And it's um, the brainchild of St. John Paul II. Again, um, I believe I have my facts straight on that one. So it's very meaningful that they have the monstrance in my mind. Yeah. And then it goes from there on the 20th of May to St. Michael's in Bedford for four days. So there's a wonderful opportunity there. And then on the 27th of May, to Holy Name of Jesus in the Fort Worth Diocese and St. Joseph in Arlington on the 28th. Now, remember, it's been in Dallas before that up until yesterday. So the Dallas Diocese has had the monstrance since Easter. And uh, Bishop Lynch High School had it as well. Our schedule then moves to June 2nd for St. Francis of Assisi and Grapevine, and then Good Shepherd in Colleyville on May 4th, and I mean June 4th and 5th, and then to the University of Dallas for the Vocational Awareness Weekend, which starts June 11th and then goes through the 12th and 13th, and then is, is to be returned by me uh, via uh, Express to uh, Chicago. Now, this all began in our dioceses with the thoughts about the Vocation Awareness Weekend. This is the 32nd year of that weekend held either at Holy Trinity Seminary, which is on the campus of the University of Dallas, or at the University of Dallas itself. So um, it's a monumental thing in that it's continuous, continuous weekends year over year. Um, and uh, this monstrance, the culmination of the weekend and the whole purpose of the weekend being discernment for vocations. So we are we are happy to be able to do this and to have continued to be able to do this. This year, last year was a non-existent year from the standpoint of things traveling or, or church gatherings. Yeah. And this year is light, but we think it's light because of we're just now coming out of our uh, perpetually distanced co- cocoons we've been in. So it's light. <laughs> It's very encouraging because the monstrance has been around. Yes. And we'll see what next year brings. But for now, if you can go to one of these parishes, um, do so. All right, um, and, and I notice obviously there's a few gaps in the schedule. I'm uh, looking at uh, May 29th through June uh, 2nd, and then also June 6th through June 10th. If somebody listening is in a position where they can host it at a parish or uh, a school, is is that still an option? Absolutely an option. Just tell them to uh, call me as soon as they can, and I'll set that up for them. Um and if they just want to call and give me their email address, I can um, send them the schedule as it is today. Um, I'm in uh, the Hill Country right now. I won't be home till Saturday, but I do have my computer with me, and I'm capable of stopping and doing things that I need to do. So uh, tell them, feel free. They can use my phone number, 972 
1-800-829-3220. And my email is my last name, B as in boy, R-E-S as in Sam, O-W-A-R, at Verizon.net. And I'll be happy to make sure if it's at all possible that they can have the monstrance. Have them check with their pastors, get all that okayed, and then uh, contact me. All right, 972-489-3220 or brassowar at verizon.net, B-R-E-S-O-W-A-R at verizon.net. Joanne Bressowar is my guest. She's the regional director of the Sierra Clubs, uh, South Central U.S. region. And uh, again, we're talking about the JP2 Monstrance, which is traveling through North Texas right now. And Joanne, how, how would you... Um, kind of explain the situation with vocations right now, especially here in North Texas and the Dallas and Fort Worth Diocese and maybe in Tyler. Uh, is it encouraging uh, or obviously we need to keep praying, but uh, what, what are the, what, what, how are the numbers right now? Well, I, I, I can't give you specific numbers except to say that it's looking very good. Uh, not surprisingly, youth is responding to the church um, maybe because they are having to be major defenders of the church, but they're being uh, drawn to the church. Our seminary at Holy Trinity at the University of Dallas is full, and that would include men from everywhere, not just Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, and then I understand from the Fort Worth Diocese, their numbers are high, Um at their seminary, uh, they have a seminary in Louisiana, and so um, very hopeful. But um, you know, uh, Dallas and Fort Worth and Tyler have been real hubs for Catholicism, for my mind's eye. But there are other places around the United States not as fortunate, and so from these seminaries can also be uh, men who go to other dioceses and other places. So. We need to pray for them, of course. And let us not forget our, our sisters and religious who um, some orders are growing profoundly. Some are moving on in that their cycle of life is passing and, and being renewed maybe with different types of groups of sisters. Um, we're fortunate to have some active orders in the Dallas, Fort Worth, and Tyler area. Um, and they they show so much love and care, depending on what you're talking about, school, hospital, um, elderly care, or simply the contemplative life, which isn't as simple as, as I say it. But um, so we we are very blessed in this area, but um, we need vocations throughout the world, and uh, we need to just dwell in the present and feel grateful just for what we have. We need to make sure it grows everywhere. Yes, indeed. Uh, Joanne Bressoir joining us, uh, with Regional Director of the Sierra Clubs, uh, South Central U.S. Uh, if you would like to get the schedule or inquire about hosting the John Paul II Monstrance at your parish or uh, your your place, uh, I don't know who can host it, but uh, you can call her and inquire, 972-489-3220, uh, 972-489-3220. You can also email her, brassowar at verizon.net. B-R-E-S-O-W-A-R 
at Verizon.net. And just a few minutes remaining, Joanne, uh, I, I guess I, I lead into that question there. Uh, can a private residence host this? Do you have to be a school or some, some formal institution within the church? Or what are the requirements? Yeah, we, um, we don't have not to date have a, had, had a private residence. It is about the parish generally, specifically. And it is, um, since we are under our Holy Father, thus our bishops of our dioceses and our vocational offices and our parish priests, it is under their direction. We make sure that everything is according to prescription. In other words, we honor the Eucharist in the monstrance, but we also, in a sense, um, take special care of the monstrance itself. So not saying that an individual home wouldn't have those prescribed, prescribed rules and be totally within boundaries. We still leave it under the umbrella of a parish, a school, Catholic school, Newman Center, um, or a convent. Um, to maintain the integrity of the monstrance and to keep it safe. All right. And uh, let me ask you one question before we let you go. Uh, People listening right now who are maybe not Catholic and thinking, what? A monstrance? What is that? What am I supposed to do? And (laughs) maybe just the very basics and not assuming every single person knows what we're talking about here. Uh, what what should people be expecting if, when they come, and, and what exactly uh, is 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 this whole monstrance all about? A monstrance, in my mind's eye, is um, not unlike a tabernacle. Yeah. So it's it's seeing the host through glass. Um, it is the body and bo- body and blood of Christ. It is Christ Himself, um, but it's not behind the door of the tabernacle. It's visual. In, um, in a design of um, adoration, meaning something that can be viewed from, from by others, held up for adoration. Um, so it is as our faith is, totally around the Eucharist, totally around the body and blood of Christ, the central point of our faith. And um, so a non-Catholic or someone not well-versed in Catholicism um, I think if you understand why you're drawn at all and you know why we are the church founded by Jesus Christ and you understand the center of our faith, once you understand that, then the idea of the monstrance and the visibility may become clearer. But if not clear, then adoration and praying for that insight and that faith and that understanding would be helpful. So attending somewhere where the monstrance is with the body of Christ visible um, would be um, to their benefit, to anyone's benefit uh, at all times. So I encourage them to come and pray, pray for the church, pray for themselves. And um, uh, we're, that's what unifies all of us. Is yes. The all right. Very good. Well, Joanne, thank you so much uh, for doing this. I know we caught you while you're traveling around a bit, uh, like you said earlier in the interview. So thanks for uh, being with us here on the interview of the week. Uh, again, we're talking about the traveling JP2 monstrance, uh, John, St. John Paul II monstrance, I should say. And uh, we invite you to inquire as to uh, to get the schedule and she'll be happy to email it to you. 
uh, and you can also host it if there's a, there's a few breaks. And just as a quick reminder, uh, tomorrow Sunday, uh, it will the the monstrance will be at Redemptorist Mater Seminary in Dallas. And then uh, next Thursday, May 20th, beginning on Thursday, St. Michael's Catholic Church in Bedford for about four days. And then May 27th, Holy Name of Jesus. And Saint- Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth, and North Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone. 